Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm Michael Fragan on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, JM in the AM.org. And we are proud once again to be sponsored by Season Supermarkets. Seasons locations in Kew Garden Hill, 68-18 Main Street, 1066 Wilmot Road in Scarsdale, New York, and on the west side at 661 Amsterdam Avenue. Our all open in the Lawrence Superstore is under renovation. But until then, the Seasons makes deliveries all day to the five towns to their customers. Call in your order, 516-295-3300, or email to lawrenceorders at seasonsny.com. And if you are in Kew Gardens Hills, stop in tonight for Mechis Cholent's Open Until Midnight. And Executive Assistant of Rummy smiles every time I say Mechis Cholent's because he doesn't get the Mechis Cholent's in Baltimore, does he? Oh, well. Uh, we have a great show coming up, and I, I know I say good evening. It's actually really kind of afternoon. It's like a 90-degree-plus afternoon, hot, sweaty afternoon here on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Uh, good thing we do have the AC humming along. But the 90-degree temperatures kind of talks tells us it is coming up on election season. We are past Memorial Day, headed towards the summer stretch, towards Labor Day. And then af- immediately after that is the Democratic primary here in New York City. So once again, we're going to unpack the Democratic primary. We have Democratic strategist, longtime friend and expert Michael Tobin joining us. And just uh, give you the rest of the rundown, uh, we are also going to have Nassau County executive Democratic hopeful. Hopefully that was uh, not a non sequitur. Adam Haber joining us a little bit later. Uh, for his first appearance, uh, our, our first interview with regard to the Nassau County executive races. And let's not uh, pigeonhole ourselves to be only about New York City. And then we will also have Kate Nocera for, from BuzzFeed uh, talking to us a little bit uh, about some of the interesting things going on in the Republican Party these days. And uh, at the end of the show, we're going to do a little special segment, a little special surprise segment on a very uh, wonderful event coming up this summer called Bike for Chai, and uh, that's a charity bike ride fundraiser for Chai Lifeline. That's really a fantastic event, so we'll talk about it a little bit later. Uh, Get away from politics for a second. But on the line, we have Michael Tobin. As I mentioned, Michael is a principal in Hudson TG. He's got other affiliations as well, too numerous to mention. A longtime friend, advisor, knows everybody, knows everything. Uh, just about New York, not just about New York City politics, but also beyond. Michael, welcome to Spin Class. Thank you so much for having me, and I'll apologize. I'm actually in the car on my way to the Brooklyn Democratic Organization annual dinner, and I know I'll be talking about the mayoral campaign and the importance of organizational support. So uh, fitting that I'm on my way to just one of those events. Very much so, and actually, it's a great, uh, great thing you point out. The Brooklyn Democratic Organization is the largest democratic organization in the country, I believe. Yes, I think that's right. In the country. In the country. So that's Kings County. They got a chock full of Democrats, Democratic voters for this 2013 mayoral primary. Not just the mayoral primary, obviously the other right. primaries as well. And the Brooklyn Democratic Party is gone undergone a little bit of a change. Over this past year? Uh, yes, uh, radical makeover. Uh, the former chairman of the organization, Assemblyman, former Assemblyman Vito Lopez, um, is now no longer at the top of the organizational chart there and is no longer an office holder. Uh, he perhaps will run for city council, perhaps not. Uh, now we are under the leadership of uh, 
former judge, former assemblyman Frank Setio, uh, who I think everyone will be hoping to spend some time with this evening. Okay, so Michael, you are Brooklyn uh, born and bred and yeah. uh, and and very knowledgeable. So give us uh, the rundown. County organizations. I want to talk a little bit about the clubs out there and what role they play in in the primary. Tell tell us what. What is the function of a county organization, and are the county organizations still relevant in today's uh, political uh, arena? They, they, they very much are relevant. Um, running for office, whether it's city council, state senate, Congress, state assembly, or U.S. Senate or, or governor or any of our other statewide offices like controller or attorney general, running for office is a very task-driven effort and one of the most arduous and difficult and, and, and um, powering Parts of that process is getting on the ballot. And in order to get on the ballot, you need the support of organization leadership, as I mentioned, like Frank Sedio, and you need the support for lower offices of voters signing nominating petitions to actually have your name appear on the ballot. If you have the support of Democratic clubs or a Democratic organization, that expensive, detail-oriented process is made a lot easier allowing you to focus on the rest of your campaign and directly communicating with voters. Um, so, yes, it is. Uh, between the saying and the doing is usually where things fall off track. And if you have organization support, uh, it's a lot easier to get things done. It's not necessary. It's not something you absolutely have to have. Uh, it's the kind of thing that matters only if it matters to you, but it does matter. So tell us the Brooklyn Democratic Party is supporting who for mayor? Uh, they're supporting Bill Thompson for mayor, okay. um, but Frank Sedio is a very, um, he, he, he's an easygoing guy in a lot of ways. And for those that have prior relationships and prior commitments with different candidates, uh, there is leeway in that. But the Brooklyn organization as a larger narrative is supporting Bill Thompson, though some district leaders in parts of the, uh, parts of the county supporting other candidates. Okay, so they are supporting Bill Thompson. Now, there are other county organizations out there. I believe the Queens Democratic Party organization is supporting... Uh, is supporting Speaker Chris Quinn. Speaker Chris Quinn. Manhattan yeah. is supporting no one, from what I understand. Yes, that is what we call leader's choice. And it's important to note that every county has different rules. Brooklyn is one of the last, I'd say, in, in the state, uh, where the state committee members, which is to say the executive board and leadership of the New York State Democratic Party, also are the district leaders, which have functions at the county local level. Manhattan and Queens, they break up those positions. It's a bit more complicated in terms of record keeping and, and who supports whom. But in Brooklyn, the district leaders are also the state committee members. And in Manhattan, they get to choose who they're supporting. Okay, so give us an idea of the role that these play. I mean, unpack it a little bit for the audience who might not be as sophisticated. You, you mentioned a lot of different types of positions. Right. And uh, and also, as as you do that, give us the, the building blocks of a lot of these organizations are, are the clubs themselves, right? There are, there are clubs out there, and they all hold individual votes on yeah. what they're doing. Well, clubs are basically just the most basic geographical subdivision of our political system that date back in New York City, using New York City as an example of the Tammany Hall system, the renowned uh, Boss Tweed um, uh, um, organization that divided the city up into different political precincts and clubs. And it really is. If in apartment buildings, it's, it's apartment by apartment and block by block. 
civic organization by civic organization and senior center by senior center. So if you're a candidate that has the support of a political club, that goes a long way to connecting you with the people, regular workaday folks who depend on government services to make their lives a little easier. Um, if you have that support, it helps a lot. Okay, are there clubs? Are, do each club have a, a defined geographic area? Yes, they do. In Brooklyn, at least, um, it is broken down by assembly district, um, which is a pretty manageable political subdivision, not as big as a state senator. There's, a lot, of, there's a lot of people in each assembly district, though. I mean, yeah, What is it, about 125, 100, between 125 and 140,000, I think the number is. I could be wrong on that. Uh, whereas a state senate district is 360,000. So it's, it's, it's a nice community-based manageable, geographically distinct way of defining the Democratic Party. Um, in Nassau County, I understand you're having Adam Haber on a little later, it's the county organization that makes uh, a big difference. Um, again, you don't have to have it to run, uh, but it helps. People have won, and people continue to win without organizational support like that. Uh, if you could bypass political clubs and the party and take your case directly to the voters and you have the legal wherewithal to get on the ballot, more power to you. It happens. So is it all about getting on the ballot? Is that the biggest thing here? I, and does, don't candidates, aren't they able to go ahead and get on the ballot without... Absolutely. You know, they, without they can get club. on the ballot. I apologize for talking over you. They can get on the ballot without organizational support. Oftentimes getting on the ballot is a, a gateway or a gatekeeper or a bottleneck um, for candidates that want to run for office but don't have the financial or legal or organizational wherewithal to do it themselves. But it's not just, you're absolutely right, about getting on the ballot. It's also about connecting in ways with a community, connecting with a community in ways that speaks to folks they trust, validators, civic leaders, block association leaders, um, and other elected officials. Uh, you don't have to have a club. It's a shorthand way. It's a shortcut. Um, Michael, you and I have worked on campaigns together where we didn't have organizational support. Other times we've worked on campaigns where we do have it. Um, you know, sometimes it's easier to have it. Let's talk about club packing here, okay? <laughs> I, I, that's, a, that's a term out there. It sounds really yeah. nasty, but let's talk about club packing, right? I've seen uh, accusations of in the press of club packing. One candidate uh, uh, or... Different club presidents have right. accused different campaigns of all of a sudden all these new members show up on the night of, a, of an election. It, 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 it does happen. It's exactly what it is. You pack the membership roster of people eligible to vote in an endorsement meeting with your friends and family and colleagues and, and, and outsiders, carpetbaggers, um, solely for the purpose of that evening's vote. Clubs often try to prevent this by setting up rules. You have to have been a member three months, six months, 45 days uh, before the endorsement meeting. Um, if you know what the rules are, you could pack the club ahead of time. It does happen. It absolutely does happen. So uh, they, very recently, Chris Quinn was alleged to have packed a, uh, uh, a club uh, in Brooklyn uh, just to win its vote, not because she necessarily needs it, um, but because it's one that is demographically, she has a demographic affinity for, it would have been embarrassing for her to lose. Um, does it leave a bad taste in people's mouth? Yes. 
at the end of the equation? Does it matter all that much? No, but it would have been embarrassing for her to lose it, so she packed the club. But how indicative is that type of vote of, of actual support? If people just show up the night of, I, I understand, okay, they're going to, you know, right. when you vote, it's fine if people who aren't engaged in the general basis, they can right. come out on election day. But to come to a club on the night of, I, it's good politics, but it, is it necessarily indicative of, of the club or of the level of support? It, it, it's a great question. It is and it isn't. The optics matter. But, you know, you can't force people to vote for you. You can't force people to carry your petitions. Um, no, it's not good politics. It's sloppy. And uh, if you are well prepared and running a good campaign, it's something you shouldn't need to do, but it happens anyway. So the answer to your question is, it depends. Oh, that's, come on. you got to be committal on that. Well, I'll, I'll, give you a, I'll give you a question that you can't say it depends. And we're here with Michael Tobin, a Democratic political strategist. Uh, we're talking about the very basic building blocks of politics out there, political right. clubs and district leaders and all that messy stuff, county organizations. Uh, Michael, uh, John Liu seems to have had a nice run since uh, since some of these legal troubles have with his staff or sure. former staff, uh, he's had a nice run of winning club endorsements. Can you uh, explain that? If you think of the club people as being the most involved in politics, wouldn't they be a little bit more turned off by being associated with scandal? Well, again, and I'm not working for any of the mayoral campaigns. I want to be clear about uh, I that. Should have, I should have um, said I, that immediately. I apologize. Michael Tobin is not working for any of the mayoral campaigns. No, no, no. no. It's fine. I, I would have said if I was. Um, John Liu's support, surprising support in a number of the clubs, speaks to a few things. One, his personal appeal. He goes to these meetings. He connects with people. He's not packing the clubs in ways I think that uh, are meaningful. Um, and I think he connects with people. Two, it speaks to, and I'm sure I'm going to get angry calls from my friends who are running for it speaks to the paucity of the field. It really is a bit of a thin field, and if there were people setting the, the campaign trail on fire, he wouldn't be getting that kind of success with the legal difficulties he's had. The third is he is an inoffensive second-best alternative. If you are a Bill de Blasio supporter in a club, but it looks like Chris Quinn is going to win it and de Blasio doesn't have a shot, well, you throw it to John Liu. And the same could be said if you're a Chris Quinn supporter and de Blasio is going to get it. You throw it to John Liu. So there is a second, you know, you could be everybody's second choice. Um, and I would point out that John Liu has not personally been implicated in these legal wranglings. Um, so who knows? Maybe he's being unfairly targeted and that resonates with some people. I'm sure, I'm sure that does. Okay, I want to... Say we're running uh, out of time right now, but I want to get one more question in there, Michael. Sure. Uh, it's the question we have. It's the question du jour, and it's the question we have been uh, asking just about everybody who has been coming on over the last couple of weeks. I can't imagine what this question will be. Go well, ahead. it's about a former Brooklynite who now lives in Queens, who now lives in Manhattan. Okay, uh, former Congressman Anthony Weiner. Okay, sure. what? What? You're a Democratic expert in the primary. What does that do to the Democratic primary race? Well, um, Anthony Weiner takes votes from Chris Quinn, takes votes from Bill de Blasio, doesn't take as many votes from Bill Thompson, doesn't take as many votes from John Liu. So that inures to Bill Thompson's benefit. He'll likely get into a runoff. The question is with who. 
And I think people are remembering now what they liked about Anthony Weiner before his difficulty. Um, they like that he's scrappy. They like that he speaks truth to power. They like that he's a hard worker. They like that he's charming. Is that going to get him into a runoff? I just don't know. I really don't know. But I would push back on the notion this hurts de Blasio more than Quinn. I think it, it, it hurts all candidates except Bill Thompson. So Bill Thompson comes away. What about all Bill Thompson's Jewish support? And I'll extend it to, you know, that last question. Bill Thompson, you know, has that all that Jewish support in Brooklyn that was right. been talked about. That would seem to be Anthony Weiner's base or his former base. So how that, doesn't that cut into it? And I, I should point out there was actually the first Jewish debate last night, the Manhattan Beach yep. Jewish Center. And, yep. uh, you know, so there are some people who feel that uh, Weiner was, uh, was strong. Right, vote for Wiener, he's on a roll, as the old saying goes. Um, I, I, I do remember that one. I, yeah, I would say Thompson's, Thompson's Jewish support is not Thompson's base. It was an extra. So does it keep Thompson from getting into a runoff? Does it keep Thompson from clinching 40% and avoiding a runoff? Yes. So in that way, I suppose I agree. But I would say these are also de Blasio supporters. Let's not forget the former councilman, now public advocate, represented half of Borough Park in the city council and has relationships there as well. So I would say it's it, it, all around it depresses the Jewish vote to anybody other than Anthony. Yeah, I would say the only one that it doesn't hurt in terms of a Jewish vote analysis is Chris Quinn because her connection with Haredi and, and Bukharian and, uh, and Orthodox communities was thin to begin with. Okay, Michael Tobin, Democratic political strategist, thank you for joining us. Enjoy the Brooklyn Democratic Dinner with the new chairman, Frank Sedio, and yep. uh, we hope to have you back again in the very near future. Thank you for the invitation. Happy to be here. Okay, we are. this is Spin Class, and we're here with Adam Haber, who is running for the Democratic nomination for county executive in Nassau County, my home county. And, uh, Adam, welcome to Spin Class, and thanks for joining us. Michael, thanks for having me. Okay, I also want to welcome uh, one of our new interns here, uh, Dina Rubanowitz from Los Angeles, joining us here in the studio. Uh, Dina, you want to give a quick hello to the audience? Hi, everybody. Okay, so we, we have a lot of Los Angeles interns. Okay, Adam, thank you for joining us, and let's get right to it, Adam. You, We just talked about kind of insurgents, people running without the county support. Uh, out there, and that is the kind of campaign that you are waging right now in Nassau County. There's Tom Swazi out there who is now has the county support. He was county executive for two terms. He got kind of uh, tossed out, and he, he wants to come back. And uh, and then you are campaigning for the right to face Ed Mangano, the current county executive. So uh, tell, us, uh, tell us a little bit about the race, why you're running, and why you're going to win. Or uh, that's a lot of questions. Uh, the race is very interesting because never in, in um, uh, I guess you could say in 2001, Swazi was the insurgent against uh, Tom DiNapoli and didn't have the party support, but uh, was politically active as the mayor of Glen Cove, where I'm coming from a much different perspective. I am on the Roslyn School Board, which I helped get involved uh, after we had the superintendent steal $11.2 million in the mid-2000s, and, and I got involved politically to see how I could help my community, and I saw how a committed person can, can add value, especially with a business background. So I am running as an outsider, uh, and the interesting thing is as I go door-to-door, as I spend a couple hours every day making phone calls, as I go to meet and greets and speak to civic associations, there's a hunger for change. Uh, people have tried the incumbents and, and the party 
you know, party politics since I've lived here since 1993, and whether it's been Democrat or Republican, it hasn't worked well. We're slowly sliding into insolvency. So I think there's, I'm in the right place at the right time. I get great feedback, uh, almost universally positive. So I like my opportunity. I like my chances. Okay, one of the things that our previous guest, uh, Michael Tobin, talked about is the difficulty of getting on the ballot if you are not uh, endorsed by the county organization. So uh, just to continue that theme for a second, how do you get on the ballot? It's an interesting process in Nassau County because there's a whole cottage industry, a cottage industry of attorneys who make it their life's work to knock people off the ballot. And usually the party, uh, especially in the assembly races and the county ledge races, um, have knocked off plenty of Dems because they make sure that every single signature you have uh, is either perfect or you're done. So the rule of thumb is four to one. So I need about 2,000 signatures that are good signatures from registered Democrats to get on the ballot. So I have to collect about 8,000. And such things like if they have on the, on the ballot uh, what town do you live in, and people usually when they put their address down say Lawrence instead of the town of Hempstead, and that knocks you off. So we have a um, top-notch attorney. Uh, teaching all the people who are doing the canvassing for, for my campaign, telling them exactly how to get a correct signature. And uh, you, can't, you have to be in the same room as the person. They can't take it to their husband up the stairs in his bedroom. You have to visually see every signature, and uh, we will be on the ballot. So you are proceeding cautiously and judiciously, I guess I would say. I'm a cautious aggressive. I am cautiously making sure that uh, we will do everything correctly, but we are aggressively seeking the 8,000 signatures we need. Fantastic. Okay, let's uh, talk for a second about the race. You're going from school board to county executive, and there might be some offices in between, if you like. Uh, what made you decide, I want to run for county executive? Well, there's no there's no training ground. It's not like baseball where you go from you know A-ball to double-A to triple-A to the major leagues. I mean, Bloomberg skipped from zero to 100. Uh, he had tremendous experience as a leader in, in the business world. Um, I have experience in finance. I worked downtown for over 20 years. Um, I have experience in commercial real estate. I represented a firm in the Pacific Northwest in New York for four or five years. I do a lot of venture capital, startup, incubator investing, which we desperately need in Nassau County. And I actually own two restaurants. So my, my background is wide and deep financially, uh, and my background also is school board. I also created a website called NassauSuggestionBox.com to try and get people more involved. And, and put their thoughts online and, and have people vote on them for more transparency. And I'm very involved uh, in a host of charities, uh, a couple of Jewish charities, and also one called on the South Shore that may have helped your community called uh, All Hands Volunteers. So my background is very wide and deep. You know, a politician is somebody who's active in the community. Um, I just haven't been, I, I haven't been uh, elected to a table office, but that's not the problem in that. So the problem is getting elected to the big office to make the change we need, because you really can't affect change unless you're in charge. So the reason why I'm running is because I love it here. Uh, I want my kids to be able to live here. We don't attract business. Businesses leave. We don't build anything. Uh, and the 20 years I've been here, we've seen a slow, steady decline, more like Detroit, as opposed to a booming metropolis like Manhattan right next door to us. So you're taking the idea that Nassau County is a county in decline? Nassau County is a county that's slowly uh, eroding. Yeah, I wouldn't say a steep decline, but if, if you ask 100 people if they think they're better off today uh, than they were 10 years ago in Nassau County, is Nassau County in a better shape? I'd say you'd, you'd overwhelmingly get people to say we're not doing well. We've lost the Islanders. 
which was like the, the psychological hub for youth to be here. Uh, police precincts closing. You got Bay Park, Bay Park sewage treatment plant, essentially non-operational uh, for half the county who who's, uh, uses that. You have social services being cut. Um, what I, I ask everybody the same question: Can you name one thing, Michael, in the last ten years in Nassau County that has been an amazing thing you could point to? Something built, some company coming here, something great that has happened? And usually there's silence. And I'm I'm asking you: uh, Can you come up with anything that's been great here over the last ten years? Wow, usually uh, my guests don't put me on the spot like that. So, uh, <laughs> I'm asking you a question now. <laughs> that's, okay, good. Well, good. Thank you for turning the tables like that. And, uh, but that's the point. That's uh, exactly. The, that's why I'm running. Okay, well, I, I've seen expansion of Roosevelt Field. Does that count? Uh, you know, there's a Tesla uh, store. Field things are going pretty there's well, a, but Simon there, Properties isn't a Long Island based company. There's so. a Tesla store in Roosevelt Field. I think that's, uh, you know, that's pretty cool that they have a, you know, car dealership inside the mall. And, uh, you know what? Why can't we get, uh, the Tesla's is manufactured in California, electric car, green. Why can't we lobby hard to get something like that here in Long Island? We have the space where Grumman was. And that would be my job to go out and be a booster because I speak the language of business and attract companies like Tesla to actually produce here. We lo- we've lost, since 2000, we've lost over 30,000 manufacturing jobs. We've lost over 30,000 construction jobs, over 50,000 high-paying finance jobs, and we replace them with jobs at Roosevelt Field, retail jobs that average about $22,000 a year. That's not a way to build an economy that's based on sales tax growth. What are your plans for the Nassau Coliseum site? What, do you, what would you like to see there in that, uh, in that hub area? Well, there's been a long failed um, uh, attempt to have that built with the Lighthouse Project under Swansea and now with the referendum in August under Mangano, which was a huge mistake. I mean, you could have done that with private financing. Uh, very creative financing, but I know from the real estate world, like EB-5 or TIF financing, which brings outsiders uh, here to, to invest in your community. That's, EB-5 financing, yeah. it, you know, if, it, it's a little technical, but if you live outside of the U.S. and you want a green card, you invest a half a million bucks into a construction project, you get to the front of the line. And that's how they built uh, J.P. in Northern Vermont and several other projects in and around New York Metro. There's no reason why you couldn't use that kind of financing that's available from the government. Um, TIF financing bonds, future interest rates, future, uh, not interest rates, future um, tax revenue from these projects. You could have used stuff like that. Name name the place. I mean, City Field gets $20 million bucks a year. We could have built that without having uh, a referendum. But what would I want there? You need a few things. You need, a, you need a, a place to do business. You need a convention center. I mean, the fact that we don't have a place to have a car show or a flower show or a toy show and it's in the basement of the Coliseum is embarrassing. Uh, Long Island is almost 3 million people. We're larger than most cities. Yet we don't have a convention center. I'm not talking about a Javits size. I'm talking about something that could do uh, 100,000 square feet. So that's one thing. Another thing is we, I would love a professional sports franchise, but it's not happening. Uh, I think putting in a minor league team will for, and um, dumbing down the stadium to 8,000 people will forever make that a second-run facility. You have to have the ability to expand if we can attract a pro team. Um, you also have to do something for affordable housing so our kids can come back and live here. We have half the affordable housing stock of any county in New York Metro. 19% of our housing stock is rental, and there's no place for my kids to come back here, recent college grads, people who are starting out to live. So it's got to include that, and it's got to include something very cool like Chelsea Market or Pikes Market in uh, Seattle, some place where it could be a hub where people can go and have great entertainment and be part of something very, very cool. Like Meisner Center in Boca Raton, if you're familiar with that. I can envision that being a great thing. 
that should be but, part of the whole project. But counties, suburban counties, uh, like Nassau, the first suburb, I guess, always have the challenge because it's not a single government that controls everything like you have in a city. You have many, many different governments and many layers. So how, how do you deal with that? I, I think one of the challenges that the county has had is that they have to deal with the towns, and they have to deal with the villages, the villages have to deal with the towns and counties and districts and the like. Is, is uh, your now opponent, a couple years ago when he was in there, one of the things he wanted to take on was kind of get rid of some of these layers. Is that something that you feel strongly about? Well, I do think that I like local control of school boards. Uh, I absolutely think that, that services that school boards could do, like busing or uh, cesspool or purchasing, um, there's ways you could do a lot of the back office stuff a lot cheaper. But I think if you want to combine school boards, that's got to come from the communities. Um, I like to know that. Did you I, really say you want to share cesspools? Yeah, I, no, I want to share services. Cesspool. cesspool. Okay, I just sorry. Yeah, I, maybe I said that, but that's uh, okay. No, no, I just I think it's it's noteworthy, and I think you're right. There is room for consolidation there. Eighty thousand dollars a year each school spends, each district spends on servicing their cesspools. I mean, it's it's a no pun intended a dirty job, but that's four million bucks. You can have a central authority hire. Uh, three or four people full-time to do it for 25 30% of the cost. Okay, Adam, I learned something new. There's no question about it. That is a great statistic. Uh, that, 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 that's absolutely – I'm wonky about that stuff. I mean, if you want to talk about Ansel systems or fire extinguishers, I can tell you what we spend. And there's so many places that we spend thirty, fifty, dollars $100,000. It all adds up, right? Uh, it's, it's, I, I think of hundred grand uh, as a teacher. I like to think in terms of teachers. And I want more teachers, not less. And I also don't want to have high taxes. So if you do things efficiently, you can keep qualified staff. It's a win-win. All right. We're here with Adam Haber, a Democratic hopeful for county executive in Nassau County, uh, which is on Long Island. And uh, Adam, talk to us as a school board member. One of the things of particular concern to many of our listeners out there is the role of private education. And uh, most of, I think, the audience out there is sending their kids to private schools to mostly to yeshivas. That's the type of show this is. Tell us a little bit uh, what you think a uh, the the paradigm should be. One of the things we have had uh, discussions about is uh, districts like Lawrence and the East Ramapo School District where... I grew up, actually. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. So uh, that where private school students outnumber uh, uh, public school students. And uh, tell, give, give us a perspective on what uh, districts can do for those who don't send their kids to public school well we're talking about combining services i mean my 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 identical my wife's identical twin sister is uh is orthodox and she sends her kids to private school in atlanta so i know firsthand the perspective that they have uh about sending their kids to private school and i know that they're treated as a separate entity now uh, the state mandates that there has to be public schooling um there's no dispute about that but we were just discussing services I mean, why can't the, the parochial schools uh, be involved in some of these purchasing, the volume discounts, and certain things that we do together? There's, there's huge savings in volume, um, and, and that's one of the things that is, is overlooked and not even discussed. And I don't understand with the 30% or so of it takes to run a school outside of paying for teachers, um, health insurance, a host of things, why can't we do it and increase our numbers to do it cheaper? I mean, that's something that I think needs to be looked into. Okay, Adam Haber, and uh, where can people follow you if they want to follow your campaign? 
HaberForNASA.com, um, also on Twitter. Uh, but I am running a very well-funded, uh, strong campaign, great feedback, and I plan on working for you. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining us here, and uh, hopefully we get some updates uh, as the summer progresses. Michael, thanks for your time, and I appreciate being on the show. Okay. This is Spin Class. We're talking politics. I want to welcome uh, another one of our interns, Shoshana Seidenfeld, also from L.A. As I said, we are L.A.-centric when it comes to uh, – Interns and uh, Shoshana, you want to just uh, say hello to the audience uh, very quickly. Hello. Okay. Well, welcome. And uh, you know, summer is upon us, and this you know transition time. I want to welcome to the class. Uh, sorry, to spin class. Uh, Kate Nocera from BuzzFeed. Kate, Hi. How are you? Okay. Well, welcome and uh, thanks for joining us. There's a lot, lot going out th- on out there in uh, in your world, and uh, you know, the question I have as far as. Uh, Politically, one of the things you've been writing about is what if you had a Republican dinner and Republican elected officials didn't show up? <laughs> uh, you're probably talking about the New York State um, Republican dinner that happened last night with Senator Ted Cruz. Yes, yes. Okay. Yes, that, I am talking about that dinner, in fact. Yeah. But, okay, yeah. so, so t- um, they, tell us what happened. Know, tell us about the controversy. So uh, Republican Congressman Peter King uh, and his colleague in the House, Michael Grimm, they were very upset at guys like Ted Cruz, guys like Marco Rubio, for voting against uh, aid to go to victims of Hurricane Sandy, uh, you know, back when that was all being debated in January. And King has been very outspoken and said, you know, these guys shouldn't come to New York to raise money and then vote against us in our hour of need. So what happened was, is Cruz was invited, the New York State Republican Party invited him to speak. It wasn't a fundraiser for him, but for the party, and King said he would be not attending, he would be boycotting. As far as I know, it was a very successful dinner. They raised a lot of money, people showed up, were very impressed with with Cruz's speech. But, you know, the fact remains is that there are still a lot of Republicans in the state that are that are hurt by what by what Cruz and some of his Republican colleagues did in the Senate. Okay, so Grimm and Pete King both stayed away, and I believe the, those are the only downstate Republicans. Uh, yep, those the, the last two. <laughs> They're holding on. <laughs> okay, so so it, it, in a sense, you had a. Well, what happened? The county, the state chairman didn't check with them first. They were, they were, a, what was this? A, a mistake, a miscommunication, or everybody was just trying to prove their own points. Why would you, why would you invite Ted Cruz? And I, I happen to, you know, I, I can't say I agree with Ted Cruz 100% of the time, but, uh, I don't believe in making anybody, uh, persona non grata. But, mm-hmm. uh, I think that, why wouldn't you check, uh, ahead of time with your elected base? And to mm-hmm. try and make sure that you don't have this type of bad press and bad karma in anticipation of a big dinner. Well, I think the argument from uh, Republican State Chairman Ed Cox was that Cruz was a was you know he's going to talk about liberty. He was going to talk about free market principles. He's a he's a Cuban uh, Cuban uh, immigrant and he you know his family immigrated from Cuba and this was going to be a dinner about diversity and so they wanted someone there to, to talk about the American dream in that context. Uh Cox defended the pick to me saying that Cruz was not against the victims of Hurricane Sandy aid. He was against um other projects that were were put in the bill 
um, that did not go directly to the victims of Sandy Aid. So, you know, I don't know if he checked in with, with King or Grimm. Grimm was actually very um, low-key. He really didn't want to talk about the fact that he wasn't going, and his office was very difficult to get in touch with. Uh, and Democrats were going to make a very big deal if he did show up because he, they see him as vulnerable. They feel like they can win win that seat. Um, so Grimm decided to stay home. He put out a statement saying that he wasn't going to go. King had been, you know, kind of talking very loudly for a while that he was upset by the fact that Cruz was, was going to be there. But uh, I was talking to another New York State um official, a, a sort of high-ranking Republican who said, you know, we can't, we can't really remember the last time Peter King showed up at a state dinner anyway. So uh, he may be grandstanding a little bit here to, to try and drive home his point. Wow, grandstanding is absolutely shocking uh, from an elected <laughs> official. I, I can't imagine that kind of thing happening. Can't, right? I know. It's stunning. But you're, <laughs> but you're telling me that the dinner was, was very successful anyway. Yeah. Yes. Okay, what, what what about the old adage? I think it's the Ed Koch adage is that, uh, you, you know, if you agree with me 90% of the time, that's great. If you agree with me 100% of the time, you're crazy. Uh, right. Why, why can't everybody kind of go along with that? I, I can't agree with somebody 100% of the time, but, you know, if we're all part of the same team, we're all part of the same party, we'll, we'll stand together for the good of the party. And is, right. that, is that falling away when it comes to Republicans? Are they in such disarray? That they don't invite Chris Christie to CPAC and and the like, and they're constantly trying to have the uh, the proverbial circular firing squad. Yeah, I mean, I think they're trying to bridge that divide a lot, and I think guys like I, th- I think Cruz is has actually been trying to to bridge that divide to some extent. There, but there's such a difference between New England Republicans and Republicans everywhere else, you know. Uh, New England Republicans tend to be a little bit more, you know, socially liberal on the issues. But, you know, what Cruz was there to talk about, and this is what Cox said, was Republican principles of, of, you know, of the market. So I think you're right trying to, you know, get people on on this plane where we can say, all right, well, we let's talk about the economy. You know, we all agree we want lower taxes, smaller government. More, you know, more opportunities for for people to to create jobs, and this is, you know, this is what they'll they'll say, and that the dinner went well, and people were really impressed by what uh, by Cruz's ideas on that. Stuff. So, okay, now tonight there's another dinner mm-hmm. for the New York County that would be Manhattan Republican Party. They're having their mm-hmm. dinner tonight. So I guess if you mm-hmm. are a Republican in New York City or New York County, at least you have a pretty busy social calendar this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're having John Huntsman as their keynote speaker. And mm-hmm. that would seem to be the total opposite end of the Republican Party from Ted Cruz. Well, that fits a little bit better, right? Maybe with Manhattan to Republicans. I'm not sure. I mean, Huntsman is definitely uh, much more much more moderate guy, but, um, you know, he'll still talk about about the economy in the same ways that I, I don't think you would see a ton of daylight on the economy between those two guys, but maybe more on, on social issues, on things like gay marriage and things like climate change. Uh, you, would, you would see a lot of, of difference between those two guys. Okay, you wrote an article about a week ago, I think, mm-hmm. about the House Republicans – 
And, uh, okay, so give us a, <laughs> you wanted to talk about the House Republicans turning on each other. And yeah. uh, I think since then, one of the House Republicans who's possibly the most prickly and potentially the most uh, divisive within the conference, Michelle Bachman, announced yesterday that she's, she's out. She's going to retire. Yeah. Uh, she's not going to yeah. run for re-election. So uh, tell me what you meant as far as the House Republicans turning on each other and uh, what does any is there anything any indication for 2014 in the conference with regard to Michelle Bachman's exit? So, so what what I was actually writing in that story was that uh, for the first time in recent memory, House Republicans were really all on the same page. Um, they were beating the drum against the Obama administration. They felt like you know they had a little spring in their step. Uh, because of all the scandals coming out of Washington, D.C., between the IRS and the Department of Justice reaching into um, reporters' phone records, uh, they were feeling pretty good about themselves. There's nothing and like a not- scandal to unite people. Yeah, exactly. You know, they ha- when they have a common enemy, uh, they're feeling pretty good. But what's been happening for the last two and a half years is that they've been fighting with each other um, instead of against, you know, President Obama or the Democrats. They've been fighting over things like raising the debt limits, whether or not they want to repeal, vote to repeal Obamacare again, whether they should be doing more votes um, on abortion or stick to jobs in the economy. I mean, there's a pretty big split between what people feel like they should be focusing on. So for the first time in, in two and a half years, they they were all on the same page. And, um, you know, Bachman... I wrote a story not two weeks ago. I wrote that Bachman was back, so we were all a little uh, surprised by the fact that she said she wasn't going to run anymore. Um, the IRS thing had boosted her. Uh, you know, she'd been reviving her Tea Party caucus uh, again. But the, you, what you have to know about Michelle Bachman is that she does not have a lot of friends in Washington, D.C. She's a very... She's a, she's a loud voice. She's a conservative voice, and she's you know on television quite often. But in terms of uh, other Republicans who follow her, she doesn't have a big following within the elected official world. She has a very large national following. So uh, in terms of you know what it means that she is leaving, what it means for the conference down in Washington D.C., I don't think it means much except that someone else might, you know, go in and try and pick up her mantle. Is there anything Sarah Palin-esque about uh, about this? You know, Sarah Palin (laughs) was at the height of her popularity and uh, Mm -hmm. out there, and she decided, okay, I'm done with this governor thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, Michelle Bachman, you know, she, well, she peaked at one point when running for president, but she's still certainly a... Has a has a strong voice on the right, as you mentioned, the Tea Party Caucus, and now she's just kind of deciding to bow out. And I think once, even though she's going to stay, she's not actually resigning her seat. Once you decide you're not running for re-election, you you don't really uh, have that much power. Maybe she didn't have that much power to begin with, but she certainly had a voice and a bully pulpit. What what you know is this just another flash in the pan, all 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 style, no substance type of thing? Uh. Well, I mean, you you can definitely argue that. I mean, she doesn't she doesn't have very high profile committee. She is on the uh, House Intelligence Committee, but she doesn't chair any committees, and she's on another 
sort of low-level committee. I think what happened was, you know, the FBI is investigating her um, some misuse of alleged misuse of campaign funds from her presidential campaign. Um, she knew she was she had a very tough race last time. She almost lost in 2012, even though it became a more conservative district. I think they were just kind of probably looking at the numbers and they weren't looking great, and so she wanted to do it on her own terms rather than lose. Now the interesting thing is it's much you know it was it was a very likely that the seat would turn Democratic if she stayed in the race. It was a high likelihood that she would have gotten beat next cycle, but now that she's out you know, a more moderate Republican come in who will probably win, so they'll end up uh, keeping the seat. So if it's a moderate seat, I mean, we've heard a lot about uh, these districts being drawn to mm-hmm. be, to kind of cater to a, a much more extreme brand of either Republicanism or Democrat, mm-hmm. you know, being very you know, packed one way or the other as far as voter registration. If there's a mm-hmm. moderate seat, then why has... Bachman being able to to hold it for several terms. I guess that's the question. Yeah, it, just, and uh, was, we're here with Kate Nocera from BuzzFeed, uh, BuzzFeed Politics. Uh, definitely a must read for the for the listenership out there. Yeah, the the I'm sorry, the district. I should explain. The district was redrawn to become more conservative uh, for her, and she still almost lost. It is a conser- it is a more conservative district. I'm saying that the the voters in the district were so sort of fed up with her that they would have rather voted for a moderate Democrat than her. That's what we saw last cycle. And now moving forward, you know, it is much more likely that a uh, more toned down but still conservative Republican will be able to hold on to the district. Uh, moving into 2014. Very interesting. So that that's kind of similar to a, another congressional personality that you've covered, Alan West, who was mm-hmm. you know nationally known talk show guy. Everybody knew him. Great fundraiser, but yet mm-hmm. he got creamed in his uh, congressional race this time around. And he picked the district that he wanted to go, and he actually moved to a new district to run in. He, he did, but I wouldn't say I wouldn't say he got creamed. It was a, that was an incredibly close race, and he. Um, he contested it for for quite a while. Uh, he wanted a recount. There wasn't enough of a vote discrepancy to trigger a recount, um, but it was actually it was actually pretty close. And national Republicans are still eyeing that seat um, to try and take back in 2014. I would I, I would agree with you though that you know that district the voters there felt you know what we'll we'll go with a moderate Republican this time rather than Mr. West, because we don't want someone that ideologically far to the right. And they don't want someone that ideologically far to the left either. I guess um, I guess my I, I, what I should have said as far as he got created, it wasn't really on the numbers. It was a sense that he ran against a, a relatively unknown Democrat, and mm-hmm. everybody, nobody gave the guy a chance. Right. And West had all the money, and he ran like he was going to cruise to a re-election, right. and somehow he got beat. Uh, which was just a huge shock for a lot of people because, as I said, he also kind of picked the district, right? He he, moved, spent, he, he was yeah, in one I mean, district, spent, and then he decided... He spent an uh, obscene, amount, obscene of money. amount of money right. on a congressional race. He millions and millions of dollars. You just don't see that kind of money being spent in one district, really, ever. And it was his money. It was money that he, you know, had raised. Outside groups weren't coming in to try and 
try and defend him or, you know, as like he was spending all of that money. Okay, Kate, last question. Kate Nocera from BuzzFeed here, BuzzFeed Politics, uh, definitely a must-follow. Uh, Kate, give us uh, some prognostication for 2014 for the Republicans, and as it looks to 2016, you know, they, they, they've had this aura of infighting we discussed before, and you know, they can't get it together on message. Is there a possibility that the Republicans can kind of unite their party, which is you know, pretty fractured right now, unite their party in advance of the midterm elections and then going in to 2016. You've been looking at that. I, I, I think I would say it depends on how um, how much these scandals hold, how much damage they actually do to the Obama administration and, and Democrats. Um, as far as we can tell, the president's numbers, approval ratings, uh, haven't moved much. That could totally change in the next couple months. And trust me, uh, House Republicans are not going to let this one go. Um, it depends also how they handle things like the debt ceiling. If we go into a situation where, you know, people feel that both sides aren't negotiating, um, there are tons, there's a lot of polling that shows that House Republicans will end up taking blame if the country defaults or is downgraded or, you know, the debt ceiling isn't raised. So I think they have to handle all of these things very, very, very carefully. And uh, what you're seeing in Washington right now is, is there are people trying to say, all right, let's let's be careful. Let's do this in a way where, you know, we don't seem crazy. We can win the argument on the economy. We feel like people are behind us in terms of spending and debt. Um, so it, it just – but you have, you know, this group of very, very vocal – People they're in the minority uh, up in Washington, but uh, you know a very vocal group that that doesn't want to. They you know they want to repeal Obamacare and they want to um, you know not raise the debt limit at all until until they get the spending cuts that they want. And I think that you know it, unless both sides can kind of come to an agreement and get the majority of people in the middle, I, I'm not sure that. Uh, it's gonna it's gonna turn out that great for for House Republicans. I think they'll keep their majority, and I actually think that Republicans will pick up some seats in the Senate because that's what usually happens in, in the midterms. But um, you know, it, it it depends on a lot on how these scandals play out over the next couple couple months. Okay, years. Kate Nocera from BuzzFeed. Thank you for joining us here. We hope to have you again uh, in the very near future. All right. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. This is Spin Class, and we're talking politics, sponsored by Season Supermarkets. And as I mentioned before, we're going to have a little bit off the beaten path type of segment. Uh, we have with us Yoel Margulies, who is the manager, the extraordinary manager of Bike for Chai, which is, uh, I'll let he, you him tell you about it, but uh, Bike for Chai is really an extraordinary project of High Lifeline, Camp Simcha, and the like, and uh, proud to have participated and looking forward to participating again in 2013. Yo, welcome. Hello, and welcome. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Okay, really a pleasure. give the audience a rundown. What is Bike for Chai? Why has it achieved such uh, legendary status uh, within the cycling community or the from cycling community? 
That, that is an excellent question, you know, <laughs> but the truth is, um, Bike for Chai is, is become, it, it just, it's taken on a, 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 it's a movement of its own, it's taken on a completely a life of its own, but it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal event, everything about it is really a great event, you know, we have, you have a group of, this year, 300, 300 men that are going to be biking from, from Jersey Shore, Asbury Park, biking 175 miles to go up to Camp Simcha, um, to, walk, to go into the camp, um, for and to raise money for the kids, um, it's it, it's just it's taken on. Why has it gone that way? It could be because you know it's it, the cause itself. Everybody knows High Lifeline. They know what we do. They know how we do it. They know the professionalism of High Lifeline and and the the amount that they're helping every one of the families and the kids. And they and you know and for a rider that gets to experience it and see firsthand what they're raising money for, you know that also makes a big difference. But the cause is something that's great that people it pulls people. The at the same time, it's uh, the event is you know when you could you could you could be very happy to go to somebody and say hey will you sponsor me I'm I'm doing this for the kids and I'm doing this for High Lifeline and I'm I'm doing something 175 miles is no small feat I mean you did it last year <laughs> you could probably tell the riders better than I can but it's uh, you know tell the tell tell all the listeners better than I can that it's you know what what it's like to ride it but it's uh, difficult I would say. It's yeah, a, it, it's yeah, a challenge. It's, it feels challenge. like it's uphill. You know, yeah. Kind of, kind of, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I still feel like it's going, you know, trying to ride that second day uphill. And it's a two-day ride from the Jersey Shore up to Camp Simcha with a stop in Muncie along the way. And uh, really some, you know, if you've driven up to the mountains, I think you realize, uh, you know, going uphill is a lot easier in a car than it is in a bike. But tell us, you're kind of oversubscribed at this point uh, from next year. Kind of set the stage. You know, what's going on? If somebody still wants to get in, is there still time? Well, there definitely there is there is still room. There's not not a lot of room left. There's definitely you know, but we have uh, we do have a few slots left. So, you know, we're holding right at that 300 mark. Um, so, 300 riders. How much money are you hoping to raise? You know what? If we if we can even do what we did last year, which was which was 1.9 million or 1.88 million dollars, which is a phenomenal amount. We even do that, you know that that's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. I think I think one of the great things about at least working, I'm talking about from the you know the logistical perspective and working with the staff side of of Bike for Chai, which really we have a great group of people working on it. Um, I think one of the amazing things about it is, is, and you probably hear that from from the from all the riders. We, we don't fo- we focus on the money in terms of everybody pushing to fundraise and to make that difference and to see where we go and how how we go. But it's not it's not about the it's not about the money, um, you know. In terms of you know, yeah, look, we hit that goal. We're making sure we make sure we have to hit three million dollars this year. We'll see. We'll see where it goes. We'll see how the guys take it and where where they go with it. Well, one thing I think that stands out is the dollars raised per rider, which I, I believe in Bike for Chai is significantly higher than any other charity bike ride out there. So give us uh, give us some perspective. Yes, it is. It actually is. Uh, it's. It. We are unparalleled as far as the research that we have done. I think last year, if I remember correctly, um, we ended up with a we ended up with a per rider average of about eight thousand dollars per rider. Um, that's, so, that's, so that's phenomenal. That's donations. That's not the rider paying eight thousand dollars. That's the money they've raised from other people who say, "Okay, if you crazy enough to ride one hundred seventy-five miles, I'll give you X amount of dollars. I'll give you a hundred dollars, thousand dollars, whatever it is." Correct. Okay. Correct. To put that in perspective, 
you you know we raised 1.8 million you know almost 1.9 million dollars last year um with with 200 riders this um you what compare is a, what that, is a you regular what, what to is a, other charity yeah. rides for them to raise for them to raise 2 million dollars they have thousands of riders you know, like the MS ride is a phenomenal event. You know, it's, it's literally thousands, 8,000 riders come in order to raise to anywhere near that type of money. Well, how do you motivate people to give so much money, to raise so much money? Are there are there great prizes involved? Um, no, I think it's a personal. I think people people push themselves. People see. They know they know where it's going. They know where it's going. And, and, and you know, I think this is one of the fascinating things about Bike for Chai, just having done it for the past bunch of years. And one of the fascinating things is that guys come, the first year they raise their minimum the 3600 that the, each one, each rider has to raise um, in order to participate and then the next year is when they raise more because then they've seen it firsthand where it goes where does it go give us uh, tell us about camp Simcha for a second tell um I mean, it's it's hard to describe Camp Simcha to anybody, but Camp Simcha itself is, you know, it's a it's a medically supervised camp for for kids with cancer, kids with uh, any serious genetic disease, serious illnesses. They're they're taking care of about a little more than 430 kids per summer. The families these these kids come from all over all over the states, really all over the world. They fly them in from from Israel, from Europe, from England. Um, you know, they come. It's completely free. Totally free of, char- uh, of charge, and it's the whole focus of camp is we give the we give the children the the um, the, the childhood and camp experience that they otherwise can't get just because of what they're going through. You know, I mean, we have a, it's a mini hospital is in camp. We like to say it's a you know the whole camp itself is a mini hospital uh, camouflaged as a camp, <laughs> and the kids this way they can come they can come right out of it and and, and go in there and it's 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 fascinating. I mean. It's, the kids tell us over and over again, this is what they live for each year, and it's it, it, it's true. It's very true, and you, you, I mean, you experienced it. You experienced it. You've seen it, and you know it. It's uh, it, it's something hard to explain to anybody until they experience it. But I'll tell you a funny story. I'll tell you a funny story. When I first started working with High Lifeline a few years ago, um, I was I was inviting a, a donor to come up to see camp, and he didn't want to come because he was afraid. That camp is, you know, he hears it's a camp for sick kids, sick kids so it's not, you know, he was afraid it was going to be a very uncomfortable experience coming in there. A little bit sad and depressing. Right. He thought it was going to be a sad and depressing place. And he comes, and, you know, I went back and forth with him and said, you got to come see. It's a, it's a magical Disneyland. You know, you, don't, you can't explain it. Just come with me. So he said, fine, I'll come up. And he came there, and he sees these kids that are smiling and happy and laughing and dancing, and like, and he, he didn't know he was in a camp for sick kids. And and he like he walked out of there, and he was completely blown away. He said, "Yoli, what, <laughs> what's going on here? I thought you said this was a camp for sick kids." I said, "Yeah, this is this is what Camp Simcha does. Camp Simcha puts joy into these kids' lives. That they're not sick; they're normal kids. They happen to be dealing with an illness, you know, a serious illness, and sometimes a life uh, a fatal illness." But right now, when they're in camp, they're kids, and they're enjoying every second of it. Okay, well, incredible. Yoel, I, I appreciate you coming on. Give us a little snippet with regard to Bike for Chai, and we're going to 
hopefully discuss it maybe a couple more times between now and July 30th, which is the pre-ride uh, pasta party down on the Jersey Shore. That's right. Okay, you're Mark Okay, I from... appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Thank you. Uh, this is Spin Class, and we are done with another week, and we will be back next week. Stay tuned for the Thursday night extravaganza with Nachum Siegel here on the Nachum Siegel Network, nachumsegel.com, jmandtheam.org. And we, again, are sponsored by Seasons. Thank you.